We are reading together uh, two portions from the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, turning first of all to page 341 in the first section of the Bible, 1 Kings uh, chapter 6, and we are reading together from verse 1. And we're reading here of how at uh, a point in the past, in the old covenant, um, Solomon, one of the greatest kings uh, of God's people in the Old Testament, uh, built the temple as a house uh, in which God would dwell in inverted commas. Uh, And then... And chapter 8, we will read of the prayer that Solomon prayed in connection with the dedication of that house. Um, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, page 341. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt... In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. A cubit was about 18 inches. 20 wide and 30 high. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubits, and projected 10 cubits from the front of the temple. He made narrow terrestrial windows in the temple. Against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide. The middle floor, six cubits And the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, And keep all my commands and obey them. I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. Then turn through to chapter 8, page 345. Chapter 8. And uh, we want to read... Uh, from verse uh, 22. 
everything's finished now uh, and all that remains uh, is for God himself to come and indwell uh, this building. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole congregation of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful in all that they do to walk before me, as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer, and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and all of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven or from the heavens, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then in the rest of the chapter, Solomon anticipates different circumstances that could arise uh, in the lives of God's people. There's a dispute between neighbours. Israel's defeated uh, in a war. Uh, there is famine uh, because the people have turned away. Um, there are um, uh, other circumstances that come into their lives. And the whole thrust is that in those circumstances, if the people pray, looking to Jerusalem, that the Lord will hear this, that he will hear and answer uh, their prayers. Um, verse 50 uh, sums it up and forgive your people who have sinned against you forgive all the offences they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of that iron smelting furnace may your eyes be open to your servants plea to the plea of your people Israel and may you listen to them whenever they cry to you for you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses, when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers 
out of Egypt. Amen. Let's stand as we call upon God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you this evening not in a temple that is made with human hands, not with a building that has been provided by man, but we come to you this evening through Jesus Christ, the one who has come down from heaven, the one who is Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. And we thank you that in Christ God tabernacles with men. We thank you that in Christ you hear our prayers. That in Christ you accept our worship. For he is the sinless one who has borne the sins of many in his body and the tree at Calvary. We thank you that all who come to you through him confessing their sin and looking to him as their saviour. They are your children. We thank you that their worship and their prayers are acceptable to you in him and because of him. Not because of any place in which they are prayed. Lord God, we thank you that in the Old Testament you did dwell in Jerusalem, you did dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple there. And that was a shadowing of what you would do in Christ your Son. And so we thank you for everything in the Old Testament that points us forward to Christ and to your dwelling with men and him. Bless us now this evening as we unite together in worship. As we have read the scriptures. As we now come to you in prayer through Christ. And as we soon consider the opening words of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven. Lord give us understanding of these words and help us to see how there is a fullness and there is a greater blessing in being able to pray these words in our day and in the New Testament something that was not possible in this way in the Old Testament bless us now we do pray you and teach us how to pray for we ask it in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. Well, tonight is the second in our series of sermons. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us to pray. This theme that we are developing, getting to grips with prayer. Uh, and we are taking... The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, recorded in Luke chapter 11, and also in Matthew's gospel, uh, we're taking it 
as the basis and the framework for this series of studies. Uh, And uh, this evening, uh, our focus is going to be on the words of verse 2. Page 1042, he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father, or as it is in the Gospel recorded in Matthew, Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. Now we speak to people differently according to our relationship with them. Don't we? When I was at school, I was taught to address my male teachers as sir. And we were taught to stand when a teacher came in to the classroom. It was a sign of our relationship to them. We had respect for them uh, and we were under their instruction And under their care. If you or I were to be in court tomorrow. Standing before a judge. And called upon to address him. We would do so using the words. Your honour. In our homes. Within our families. We address one another. With terms of affection. A husband sometimes uh, will use his wife's name in a form that no one else will or can. And that's because of a special relationship that they have. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations in life and we're not quite sure how we should address the person that we're going to meet A number of years ago, some of us had the opportunity to go to Dublin and to meet the President, Mary McAleese. And I remember us all saying uh, to Beryl McKnight, who was the one that was coordinating the visit, Beryl, how do we address the President of Ireland? You see, it's important. uh, And it depends. And it's influenced by the relationship that we have. And so as we come this evening uh, in this second address on getting to grips with prayer, we remind ourselves that prayer is talking to God. That's what prayer is. It's talking to God. But how are we to address God? How are we to approach Him? We know that God is the Creator. The omnipotent, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the everywhere present one. Well, how are we to address someone like that, who is infinite, who is eternal, who is unchangeable? The Bible also tells us that he is sovereign. The one who is the mighty ruler over all things. So are we to address God as sovereign? The Bible also tells us, as we touched on this morning, that he is our judge. 
And we've already thought about how on earth we come into the presence of a judge. So if we want to get to grips with prayer, we need to know how to approach the one to whom we pray. How are we to view God, who is creator, who is sovereign, who is judge? How are we to address him? Well, remarkably uh, and wonderfully, Jesus, in the first place, in these words, teaches his disciples then and since then. And he teaches us tonight, who are his disciples, to address God as our Father. Our Father. And that's a remarkable statement. That would have been a most surprising thing for these disciples to have heard Jesus say. Never happened in the Old Testament. Yes, in the Old Testament, there was references to God being a father. You remember a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were doing our study in the life of David. God said to David all regarding Solomon, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son. And yet we read there of Solomon addressing God. And he did not dare address God as father. In the Old Testament, uh, the people of God who enjoyed salvation in Christ and looked forward to the Christ um, who was coming as their saviour. They address God as Lord, or Sovereign God, or Almighty God. Look at the great prayers in the Old Testament. The prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 1. The prayer of uh, Daniel uh, when uh, he was in captivity. Daniel chapter 6. Look at this prayer of Solomon. And you'll see that in none of those prayers... Did they address God as our Father? So there is a staggering change and development that has taken place here. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, He's saying, Now that I have come, now that the final revelation of God has come in me. You are to think of God first and foremost as your Father. Not my Father, but our Father. Because God has a family, a large family, that is made up of men and women and boys and girls from the nations of the earth. And I want us now, as we think about this theme of addressing God as our Father, to notice the verses in the New Testament that underline this and emphasize this. We're going to have to do a quick survey here. Turn to page 1170 in the Church Bible. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 
6. And here is what Paul wrote uh, to the believers in the church at Galatia. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, page 1170. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So this is a characteristic of the church in the age of the Spirit. Yes, they had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but only partially, not in its fullness. And so they wouldn't dare address God as Father. But now we have the Holy Spirit in its fullness. And he indwells every single Christian. The moment he brought you to faith, the moment you came to repent and believe, the moment you were born again, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. And from then you are to think of God as our Father. Now, what are the characteristics of a father? And these are important because they are the things that we're to keep in mind as we pray and as we come to grips with prayer. We're praying to our Father who does what? Who loves his children. Who loves his children. John chapter 14, uh, page 1082. In the church Bible. John chapter 14 and verse 21. Jesus says. Whoever has my commands and obeys them. He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him. And show myself to him. And as you and I come to God in prayer, we've got to remind ourselves, whatever our hearts and minds and our lives and circumstances and whatever the world would say to us, we've got to say, loved by our Father. Loved by our Father. But then we'll see later as we close our service and sing from Psalm 103. That we are pitied by our Father. And here we have the idea of the compassion of a Father that reaches out, that is concerned for his people. Psalm 103 and verse 13. But then as a Father, not only does he love his children and pity his children, he protects his children. Think of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and following at page 1135 and he talks there about all kinds of adversities that come into the lives of believers and here's what he says in verse uh, 35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ and then he speaks of difficulties and problems and then at the very, very end he says, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
You see, we're protected as believers, not from troubles, but we're protected in the midst of troubles. Then he's a father who provides. Matthew chapter 6, page 971 in the church Bible. Matthew chapter 6, and verse, from verse 25 on. And Jesus is talking here to his disciples. And he knows that they need clothes. And he knows that they need food. And he knows that there are all kinds of of pressures bearing down upon his people. And what does he say to them? Do not worry. Do not worry. Your father knows that you need these things. And if he provides for the birds and provides for the grass, how much more will he provide for you? The father also chastens, chastens. And there are times that we need to think about that and we need to bear that in mind in our lives. And as we come before him in prayer, page 1210 in the church Bible and Hebrews 12, verse 6. The Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes or chastises would be a better way of of putting it. He corrects everyone he accepts as a son. You see, again, like an earthly father, you men who are fathers here, you've chastened, you've corrected, uh, you've disciplined your children because you love them. And children, that's why your fathers discipline you. And believers, our father at times has to chasten us. And he has to discipline us. And correct us. Because we're not listening to him. And we're not obeying him. And he's spoken to us. And we've turned a deaf ear to him. And what a wonderful thing it is that he treats us as sons. And then there's that wonderful statement uh, in John's Gospel of our Father that he will never abandon us. He will not leave us as orphans in this world. Father and mother may forsake me. Friend may let me die. And all kinds of situations may arise where people around us People we live with, people we work with, and they let us down. But our Father will never abandon us. What a Father we have in this almighty, eternal, unchangeable God. In Christ, he accepts us. And as his disciples... He does all of these things for us. And so Paul uh, brings it all together in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12. How does all of this then impact us coming to God in prayer? Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12. uh, Page page, um, 1175. In him and through Faith in him, that's Christ. We approach God with freedom. 
with liberty and with confidence, with boldness. So if we're going to approach God, if we're going to get to grips with prayer, we need to know who he is. And first and foremost, you who are saved in Christ, you're to think of God as your Father who loves you in Christ, who pities you in Christ, who protects you in Christ, who provides for you in Christ, who chastens you in Christ, who never abandons you in Christ. And all because he has pardoned you in Christ, his Son. And he has adopted you into his family in Christ. So Jesus teaches his disciples to address God as our Father. As we come to pray in our own devotions, let's take time in this week that lies ahead to allow this to seep into our minds and into our hearts and to rest in this great truth that God, whom we approach in prayer, is our Father, who knows us and who knows our needs better than we do ourselves. But then secondly, and more briefly, Jesus teaches his disciples to seek God in heaven. In heaven. You see, the question here is, where is God to be found? Where is God to be sought? And these men are Jews. That's their upbringing. These men are steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament Scriptures, where was God to be sought? Where was God to be found? He was to be sought in Jerusalem. The city to which David brought the tabernacle. The city in which Solomon built the temple. And you see that, if you'd ask these men, where is God? Where do we look to when we want to seek God? They would have said, Jerusalem. They would have said, the temple. But you see, Jesus himself, as the eternal Son of God, the one of whom, and sorry, the one to whom God is Father in a special and unique sense, to whom God has always been Father. Where does Jesus look? He looks to heaven, where he has come down from. And he says to his disciples, from now on, you are not to think of 
seeking God and finding God in the temple or in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. You are to think of seeking and finding God in heaven. It's striking that in the throughout the Old Testament, the Jews when they were in captivity, and we have time we could look this up, I'll give you the reference. It's Daniel chapter 6 and verse 11, page 891. When Daniel wanted to pray, and here now he's in Babylon, he can't be in Jerusalem, he can't go to the temple, but what does he do? He opens the windows of his room and he looks westward to Jerusalem, to the temple. And you see, he was doing exactly what Solomon had said uh, God's people should do in Second and uh, in First Kings chapter eight, because uh, Jerusalem, the tabernacle, the temple was where the place where God in the Old Testament resided with men and could be found and experienced and known of men. And you see, when Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria, do you remember that incident in John chapter 4? She was a Samaritan. She was a little sect that had broken away from the Jews and had got caught up in various false ideas and one of the things, one of the big debates between the Jews and the Samaritans was is God to be found in Jerusalem? Or the woman said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You see, is it this mountain? Ebal, Gerizim, to the north of Jerusalem? And what did Jesus teach her about where God is to be sought and found? John chapter 4, page 1067, verse 21. Here's what he said. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming, verse 23, and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit. You see there, worship the Father. Worship our Father as believers in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, God is to be worshipped now in the Spirit. In Christ. Christ is the tabernacle. Christ is the temple. He is the one who's come down from heaven. He is the one in whom we find God. He is Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. And you see, Jesus teaches his disciples to seek God in heaven. Literally it is in the heavens. It's striking that Solomon used that phrase back 
in 1 Kings chapter 8, but we don't have time to go there tonight. Now here's the relevance of this for you and me. There's still a great controversy amongst religious people who want to find God today as to where God is to be found. You ask the Muslim, and he wants to find God. And where does he go to find God? He goes to Mecca. You ask the Roman Catholic, and they want to find God. And the place where they will go to find God, the place where God is, is in Rome. And there are some evangelical Christians today. And you ask them, where is God to be found? And they will say, Jerusalem. God is restoring Jerusalem. And the temple is going to be built. And all of the Old Testament things are going to be there. And all three answers are wrong. Because God is not found in Rome. God is not found in Mecca. God is not found in Jerusalem. God does not dwell in a building made with human hands. Let's turn for a moment to Acts, sorry, to Acts page 1100 in the Church Bible. Acts chapter 11, sorry, Acts chapter 7, page 1100. Acts chapter 7 and verses 48 to 50. Here's what Stephen says, you see, and he has grasped uh, what Jesus was teaching his disciples. However, the Most High, that's God, does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so today, the building is of no significance. This building is as appropriate in God's sight as is the greatest cathedral that you can think of. St. Anne's in Belfast. Or Church House in Belfast. These glorious buildings, and sometimes people think these buildings, there's something special about them. There is nothing special about them. They're only a meeting place. Only a place to facilitate the church to meet. Because God does not reside in a building any longer. He doesn't reside in a city any longer. He resides in a son among his people. And you see that is wonderfully liberating. The God who is in the heavens now dwells with us in the Christ as we trust in him. And it's wonderfully liberating. And it's a wonderful blessing. Because it means you can approach God anywhere. Tomorrow in your workplace, some crisis happens. And you don't have to say, oh, 
I'll have to pray about that tonight when I go home. Well, you can pray there and then in your heart. Or take yourself off to the the gents or the ladies if it's got to be something longer and sit before the Lord and pray there. We can pray anywhere. Through Christ. For he is the tabernacle. And he is the temple. And so we look to the heavens where God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is revolutionary. What Jesus teaches his disciples. And it's vital today in an age when the church again is in danger of getting caught up with buildings and places and pilgrimages and thinking that those have some significance. They don't. And they won't. Because God, to whom we pray, is our Father in the heavens. Amen. Let's pray, eternal, unchangeable God, that we can call you our Father in heaven because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf to deal with our sin. We thank you that as his disciples we are loved, we are pitied, protected, provided for, (coughs) chastened, and never cast off by you. We thank you that your love will not let us go. We bless you that we can come to you with confidence and with assurance. We thank you for the day in which we live, the much greater privilege that is ours, and the greater blessing than the believers had in the Old Testament. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Help us when life is difficult and when the going is tough to rest afresh and to be encouraged by your fatherly care for us and to remind ourselves of it day by day. We thank you that you are in heaven. You're not in a building You're not in a city on this earth, but you're the God who comes to us and draws near to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through him we have access into your courts and into your presence in heaven, which is your dwelling place. Help us, Lord God, again to remember the privilege and the blessing of being able to approach you in any place, at any time, through him who is Emmanuel, God with us. Bless us in the week which lies ahead, and help us and teach us how to pray to you, our Father, in the heavens. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make a space to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.